0: that make you feel young again? Which is good because they always make me feel old. So um, they say I can't say certain things and whatever. That's, you know, I deal with it. Um, <laughs> I If you are interested in serving in the youth ministry, I'd love to chat with you. Um, it is a, a ministry that is truly changing lives. Um, we've seen, at least since I've been here at least, uh, we've seen um, almost 50 students give their lives to Christ. Multiple students dedicate their lives to, to serve the Lord. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's also life-changing. And so if you'd love to get involved, I'd love to chat with you. But One of the things um, I want to talk to you today about is, um, I, I had just spoken to the graduates. And graduates, I'm speaking to you today, but everybody else here. Um, I'm speaking in part to those of you who are ready to graduate from the last thing that you've been working on with the Lord and move into that next thing that the Lord has for you. Um, And so I'm speaking in part to graduates, but I'm speaking in part to everybody as a graduate today. Um, And one of the things I love about doing youth ministry here at Wallen Lake Community Church is that my team and I, we get to be part of a student's life where they hear who they are and then they live into that. Um, They hear who they are in God's eyes. They hear who they are in the eyes of caring adults who would love them no matter what. And then we get to see them becoming that person that everybody always told them that they were. Now, sometimes what that means is they grow towards God. And and they grow towards that picture that people have spoken over them as God's child. And they begin to live into that reality. Other times, however, uh, they grow towards an unoriginal and unfulfilled version of themselves that the world is speaking over them. Have you ever known somebody um, who shaped their life, or at least their conversations and their words, around the types of actions they were always praised for? I was that kid when I was in middle school. Um, I saw everybody else being really popular as skater punks, as the skater dudes, and when I was in middle school, I wanted... To the love and the attention that they got. And so everybody spoke wonderful things over them, at least the people that mattered to me. And I wanted to be like that. So I began to live into that, and I began to grow towards that. Um, And so I would do things that skater punks did. I would say things that skater dudes or BMX dudes did. And um, so I would come home with words that I never learned at home. Um, I would, you know, I remember somebody calling me out on that on my football team one time, and they're like, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? I was like, oh, now I'm really embarrassed. I would do things that I saw other skater dudes doing. I was kind of a bully. Um, I would buy things that I thought would make me more like a skater dude, so I'd buy the flat bill hats and the, um, the skate shoes and the baggy pants that showed off my whitey tighties. Um, and, I wanted to become that version of whoever I wasn't so that I would get the praise that I didn't think I had at the moment, and that was my story. I mean, I was so insecure about not being liked that I tried to be somebody I wasn't because I knew at least those people got some popularity, and I wanted, for so bad, for, to experience what I saw as the glory of this skater dude lifestyle, and... Um, I wanted to be that guy, and I saw glory in that type of a, of a persona, and that in part began to shape my story, at least in middle school, um, but I think the idea is true for most of us as well, because I think a lot of us still have that middle school mentality that the things that tell us who we are become the things that begin to define us for those next parts of our lives, for this season of my life, for the next season of my life at the very least. That those things that, and those people that tell us who we are begin to shape our story. In other words, the, the things that you see glory in, the things that you see honor in, You're going to move towards that, and the type of glory that you see is important is beginning to shape your story. So in other words, where you find your glory will always shape your story. In fact, that's the main idea I want to get across to you. If you don't remember anything, if you're only taking one-sentence notes, like that's a good one to write down. uh, Where you find your glory will always shape your story. In fact, this has always been true. This has been true for thousands of years. This was true when Jesus was alive here on planet Earth um, and walking around with a human body. And today I want to talk to you today from the book of John about this idea of where you're finding your glory. The idea of glory in your story. So we're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning. Um, And if you're taking notes, the the title of my sermon is Glory in Your Story. Um, and, And with this sermon, I want to focus mainly on four lifestyle changes that come when you seek glory from God instead of glory from men. Um, Four lifestyle changes that come from when you seek glory from God instead of glory from men. So if you have your Bibles open, um, we're going to start right here in verse 1 and it says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him and Martha was serving and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, or as I've heard a child say one time, Judas the scariest. Um, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages? That's about almost a year's salary and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself with it. And then Jesus says, "Leave her alone. She's preparing my body for the burial." Like I love this because there's almost this ominous foreshadowing happening at the same time. You know, it's the Passover was near. Judas was about to betray him. All this stuff is just kind of like the the da 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 music in the background and Mary enters this scene and does something that is Fairly preposterous. Mary enters the scene. And she goes straight to Jesus and profusely uses up, or even some would be saying overuses, her expensive perfume um, on Jesus simply because of her total devotion and gratitude to Jesus. She takes 12 ounces of perfume that cost almost a year's wages. So on average, let's just say that's, for example, $50,000. Like, she takes a $50,000 12-ounce bottle of perfume and dumps 100% of it on Jesus' feet and begins to wipe his feet with her hair, which seems absolutely ridiculous. It seems unreserved. It seems profuse and lavish, especially for the moment. Mary, what are you doing? And, and, and in the book of Luke, actually, Luke tells this story from the perspective of the Pharisees are kind of grumbling, Jesus, why are you letting such a nasty woman do something like this to you? But I love how in the book of John, there's more of an economic evaluation here, um, because it's interesting, thus, how Judas is portrayed in that light. Uh, Judas here, I don't think many people would see this decision and this statement that Judas makes, why didn't we, why did we use so much money on our love for Jesus when we could have wisely invested it in a ministry venture? Right Like I've heard that talked about uh, before i've I've heard statements like that, not from Judas. I've heard statements like that um, in Christianity, right? and so there's this idea like Judas is actually sounding kind of smart. The business plan he lays out makes a little more sense than what Mary just did, just impulsively it seems. But this passage actually refocuses the picture uh, on Judas not merely as a mistaken person or not merely. Uh, as an unfortunate, misguided guy who, who in, it was the wrong moment, but what you said was right, Judas. Yeah. like It focuses right on Judas's heart. He was an inherently evil thief who had no concern for the poor. That's not why he said it. He actually said it because his heart was bad. His heart was not with Jesus, which is directly contrasted with Mary. Uh, and so Judas confesses this shrewd business plan, it seems at the time, but with a heart that is far from the Lord. And... I recently heard something that grabbed my attention. It was a memorandum sent to Jesus, son of Nazareth, in the wood carpenter's shop from the Jerusalem management consultant firm in Jerusalem. Um, obviously, this is fictitious, but it was written as if Jesus had hired a consultant com- consulting company to tell him who to choose as the disciples. I got a kick out of this. It reads like this Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We've not only run the test through computer, but also arranged personal interviews with our team psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It's the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprises you're undertaking. They don't have a team concept, so we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability elsewhere. Uh, For example, Simon Peter is emotionally unstable. He's given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Definitely have radical leanings. They both registered high on the score of the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, and he has a keen business mind. He also has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Aren't you glad God doesn't give glory the way people give glory? We're talking about this idea of where you're finding your glory and how that's shaping your story. And, and sometimes what seems to us to be the very reason that we would doubt that God would imply glory upon somebody, that God, we doubt that God would bring somebody into his glory, sometimes becomes the very reason that God chooses to bestow his glory on that person, to reveal his glory. It's often the very reason... He brings us into his glory. Um, And it's interesting because in this moment, kind of focusing on Judas here, a heart condition is revealed. And then we move on into verse 9 and it says, And the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there and they came. Here's a heart condition thing. Not on account of him, but to see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And I'll I'll get more into this later, but this is hilarious. Does anyone find the absolute dripping irony in this situation? Like, they actually said out loud to one another, we should kill Lazarus, who Jesus just raised from the dead, because he's stealing our thunder. Okay, I'm going to put that again. I'm going to say that again. They actually said to one another, we need to take the life from the one who was given life by the Lord of life because it's ruining our party. Like they said, let's get rid of the evidence that points directly to the divinity of Jesus because, not because it doesn't make sense, we don't want to believe in him because he is a threat. Guys, people don't reject Jesus because the evidence or the intellectual coherence is lacking. The religious leaders are blatantly overlooking probably the most obvious and and airtight argument for the divinity of Jesus. A dead man walking that people watched him do it. But they rejected Jesus and they found these excuses that they came up with because they didn't want to believe in Jesus. He was a threat to them. He was taking over their world. And I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't really care about the honor that the world gives. Jesus has no concern, obviously, for the honor that the world gives. And interestingly enough, Lazarus has very little concern as well over the honor that the world gives. Um, But we move on and there's these huge crowds following Jesus because they're, they're flocking to follow a famous person. Right, like, oh yeah, I saw Jesus. Did you know? Okay, I'm cool. Like, yeah, I'm flocking to follow this famous person, but Jesus, in contrast, only found affirmation and, and honor in the glory that comes from God. So we pick up in verse twelve, the next day, this large crowd has come to the feast. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and and they all lay palm branches down, right? They're giving Jesus honor, and we know that's not gonna last. And Jesus found this donkey, he sits on it, he rides through, and the disciples have no idea what's going on, but every single time Jesus is quoting something from the word of God to describe to them what's happening. Like I said earlier, um, you're going to confess the things, you're going you're to say the types of things, you're going to have this type of lifestyle actions that reveal where you get most glory from, where you find the most honor from. And Jesus is continually confessing the things from God. And that's almost like, for Jesus, that's a starting point. That's not, oh, I'm going to convince myself to believe in God. Like, that's his starting point. Finding more affirmation in the love of God than in the love of man. And so in these conversations that he has throughout this chapter, he's shamelessly clinging to the glory of God and the gospel that offers light to the world, knowing full well, it's probably going to kill him. And it's Jesus. He knows it's definitely going to kill him. His disciples are like, uh, you probably shouldn't say that anymore. Do you really? Like, you, you might want to change your language. Maybe think of some new phraseology, Jesus. And they're like, yes, this, is, this is kind of dangerous. And Jesus, no, I, you know, I know. But the thing that mattered the most to Jesus was the honor that comes from God. He was committed to letting God's story shape his story. And we see that here in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks and they came to Philip and came to Andrew and they said, we want to see Jesus. And so they go tell Jesus and Jesus says to them, verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, that where I am, there my servant may be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled up. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there, and they thought it was thundering, and others said, no, it was an angel speaking to him. Jesus says this, verse 30, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said that to show what kind of death he was going to die, implying crucifixion. Now the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? They get what he's saying. How are you saying that you're going to die on a cross? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus says, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, lest darkness overtake you, walk in it. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. And Jesus is committed in all of his conversations to letting the glory of God shape his story. And actually so does Isaiah because we keep reading and John begins to quote Isaiah and, in, and this is the exact same thing that Isaiah is doing. He's letting the glory of God shape his words. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by Isaiah... Was fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again, Isaiah says, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Why does Isaiah say this? Verse 41, Isaiah said this, because he saw the glory of Jesus. He saw God's glory demonstrated in Jesus, and that shaped what he wound up saying which made his life very difficult as a prophet. On the other hand, however, and, uh, this contrast is, is stark. But this contrast is depressing and, and sad and an absolute travesty. Because you continue on. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. Nevertheless, contrast coming. Many even of the authorities believed in him, but... For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You can still believe in Jesus and fear the world. They feared and saw more glory in the honor of man than in the honor of God. And so they didn't confess Jesus. What you love most will be what you continually portray about yourself to the world. What you love most will be what you continually portray about yourself to the world. If you love the glory of man, you're going to confess the things that men give glory to. But if you love the glory of God, you're going to confess with your lips and with your life, you're going to confess Jesus Christ. The behaviors and the pursuits of your life are always going to be based on whose affirmation and honor you find most satisfaction in. In other words, where you find your glory is always going to shape your story. Where you find your glory is always going to shape your story. And might I even be so bold as to declare that you were made for glory. You were specifically designed with eternity in your heart. Every single one of us is on a lifelong quest to discover how we matter, not just for 80 years, but for eternity. Every single one of us is longing for an experience that transcends our current situation. Every single one of us uh, is is cruising to, to discover how we can make a dent in the landscape of eternity, how we can matter for more than just this current life. Every single one of us was made for glory. But so often we settle for limited versions of glory that the world is dangling in front of us. We're content with tarnished glory. I'm about to step on your toes here for a minute. And I'm sorry if what I say is portrayed incorrectly. I'm not sorry if the Holy Spirit's knocking on your heart through this preacher's imperfect lips. But there are behaviors and pursuits in our lives, just like these authorities who believed in Jesus but didn't confess for fear of they're going to lose honor from man. There's behaviors and pursuits in our lives that we do for the sake of gaining worldly honor because there are times when we love the honor of the world more than the honor of God. Some of us are obsessed with athletics or academics or arts. We think that if we just get more recognition here, we just succeed at a higher level here, or if just a few more people notice how good we are and and are are satisfied with that, then that's going to get us a little bit closer to the meaning of our lives. Can I level with you for a moment? Your academic gifts, your athletic gifts, your artistic gifts, they were designed by God, to help you understand a little bit more about God and to reveal him to the world. Your academic brilliance is about God. Your athletic prowess is about God. Your artistic flair is about God, not you! You might not actually think you have a problem with gossip. Let me talk about it in a way you might not have thought of. Gossip is a behavior that is based on the fear of not being given worldly honor. In other words, you're basing your lifelong quest for glory on tarnished glory. You're satisfied to steal it from somebody else and hope that more is going to come your way. And so you talk about people who aren't there so that you can get glory from people who are. Or maybe it's boasting, and you might not think again that you go about bragging about your above average life, but how often do we fill that space that follows a slightly pleasant detail from somebody else's life with a slightly more pleasant detail from our own in hopes that whoever's present notices our glory more so that we can receive tarnished glory in this life that we are created to receive in an eternally brilliant capacity in the next Or maybe there's somebody who's speaking a different story over you. Somebody in your life. And because their love and their honor and their affirmation is something that you crave so much. Now you're considering leaving behind the very calling and destiny that you were made for. Or you might even be considering whether or not you want to believe in Jesus. And you're coming up with excuses not to. Because this other person who is not God is speaking a story over you and you crave that so much that you're willing to settle for tarnished glory. Like this other person who is not God is all you want and you treat them like God and so you're willing to become whoever they say you are to get whatever little they offer and you fall so far short of the beauty of the heavenly calling placed upon your life for the sake of something that could never satisfy you in the first place. You're placing a higher value on, on this team or that camp or, or this band or that academic pursuit. Higher, in, actually, than getting involved in the body of Christ. Giving your life over to some kind of behavior or attitude that you fear that if you don't, you're not going to have enough to live on or that your kid is not going to be able to live out the dream that you have for them. And so you rationalize the type of person or family that you're becoming Because to do these things you feel is necessary or else you're not going to make it in this world or in this world's eyes. So you ignore the ugly parts of your life that don't look a shred like Christ thinking that maybe God will understand what you're trying to accomplish when the entire time it was never about him but about the type of glory and honor that you are trying to seek from this world. For example, you get angry at your family because you want them to grow up and have a better life than you did and so you blow up about them when they fall short of that. But on the inside, you're destroying them. You think that it's okay to skip church because you've planned a family day. Thinking that you're teaching your kids the importance of family. When in reality, you're just adding to their growing list of excuses to avoid God's family when they leave yours. You avoid discipline or, or hard conversations that you need to have because you're worried about someone's mental health being fragile, but when the reality is that you forget that the greatest health, the greatest mental health is gained through persevering through the struggle and overcoming obstacles and being trained how to respond correctly to stress. In other words, discipline. And so because you think your honor is at stake in the world, you're rationalizing the way that you're wasting away your life chasing tarnished glory. And in the process, your life and the lives around you are affected. But what if there is a different way? But if there's a different way in this world, what what if you being made for glory mattered right now? What if you were able to harness the glory of God in your story to become the body of Christ, to become a representation of God? You were made in the image of God. You were made to display the glory of God to this world. And in that process, you experience the glory of God. What if there is a different way than just pursuing this honor that comes from this world. What does it look like to live for God's glory. Instead of for the glory of man. As I mentioned earlier. I want to offer you four lifestyle changes. That I get straight from the text here. Four lifestyle changes that come from seeking glory from God. Instead of glory from man. The first thing I see is a profuse generosity to the things of God. Or, or might I say an unreserved Generosity to the things of God. Mary pours almost 12 ounces of a year's wages, dumps it right on Jesus' feet for her love for Jesus. She's willing to be profusely and unreservedly generous simply to demonstrate her love to Jesus, no matter how degrading it was to her personally. Because what she did was the action of an outcast or a slave. Mary had an unreserved and a profuse generosity to the things of God. What does your love and devotion to Jesus look like? Believe me, it looks like something and the people around you know what that looks like. What are they seeing? What does your love for Jesus look like? Mary had an unreserved and a profuse generosity to the things of God. The second thing I see is a relative indifference to worldly fame. Lazarus not caught up in the fact that everyone wants to see him as a museum article following around this really famous person. Lazarus not caught up in, in worldly fame. Jesus is not caught up, he's relatively indifferent to what people really care about as far as fame is concerned. I heard this recently, Ravi Zacharias, who's much smarter than me, was talking about this look into Lazarus's experience post death. I'm just going to read it for you. Have you ever wondered what you would do to frighten Lazarus after he'd been raised from the dead? What are you going to do to threaten him? Lazarus, I'm going to kill you. Caligula says, I'm going to kill you like I'm killing all the Christians. Lazarus says, ha ha ha. Caligula says, stop ha 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 I'm going to kill you like I'm killing all the Christians. Lazarus doubles over in uncontrollable laughter, comes up for air, and he says to Caligula, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. How do you frighten someone who's already been there And knows the one who's going to let him out. Just think of heaven. Think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven. Think of touching a hand and finding it God's hand. Of breathing new air and finding it celestial. Of waking up in glory and finding it home. Ladies and gentlemen, your hope and mine in Christ is that one day we will be with God. In the glory of God. We look back on history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling Revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated, wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and the fall of the great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I heard a crazed, cracked Austrian, referring to Hitler, announce to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown, referring to Mussolini, say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful Then the rest of the world put together so that, had the American people so desired, they would have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. Hitler and Mussolini, dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin is a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by the fears of running out of the precious fuels that keep their motorways running and smog settling, all in one lifetime. All in one lifetime, gone with the wind behind the debris of the fallings of our solemn supermen and imperial diplomacy lies the gigantic figure of one person because of whom, by whom, and through whom mankind may still survive, the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah calls him wonderful counselor. Peter looks at him and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Thomas raised his hand and touched his side and said, be my Lord and my God. Pilate looked at him and said, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, you have said it. In John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do not go, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Lord, where are you going? If we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, show us the Father, Lord. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. Have you been with me so long you don't know? That when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. He who believes in me, greater things than these shall he do. What are you going to do to live for the glory of God? Who are you going to live for? What will you do with the only life you have whose glory matters more to you? So we see a relative indifference to worldly fame. We also see a constant discussion of the word of God. Jesus found his starting point in the word of God. Think about this. Had Jesus found more honor and glory and worldly fame, he would have done things very differently. I mean, he might have established a revolt, to, um, revolt against the Roman occupation. He could have called down his angel armies just to show off his power. He could have even just walked away from it all just to establish a speaking career and amass unprecedented worldly fame, but God's glory was his starting point. And though it was going to cost him personally, he shamelessly talks up the glory of God and the gospel that offers light to this world. He was committed to letting God's glory shape his story. What's your starting point? What's the thing that from day one, from ground zero, from wherever you're starting, what's the thing that you're going to be moving towards? God's glory... Or man's glory? Are you hoping more for God's glory? Or are you hoping more for the glory of man? Why do you do what you do? And the fourth thing that we see is an open confession of the Son of God. Jesus was talking constantly about the words of God. There was this current or constant discussion of the word of God. But then we see actually contrasted, we see a bad example of this in verses 42 and 43. The open discussion, the open confession of the Son of God. Like the new believers, they still feared the Pharisees. They didn't confess Jesus to the world. Revealed that you can still believe in Jesus and totally fear the world. But the reality is it's a heart issue. And when your heart is tied more to the glory of the world, at best you're going to live a life that is vain, futile, And if used by God is only a testament to the grace of God, not your love for him. A life that doesn't honor God is not a life that is honored by God. But a life that is lived for God's glory is characterized by a constant confession, an open confession of the Son of God. Is your life defined by that? What do the people around you know that you talk about the most? I would encourage you, if this is something that the Lord is speaking to you, to, to do some serious business with Jesus. To, to, to pray, to ask the Lord to, to encourage your heart and to motivate your heart and to inspire your heart to be so much more interested in the glory of God and thus your language is reflected by a constant discussion, a constant confession of the Son of God. And begin confessing Jesus to those around you regardless of the personal relationships that it might affect, because the reality is this, with the honor of God that is available for you, the glory of God that God created you to be experiencing, if that's the thing that matters more, I've got a feeling God has a way of figuring out relationships. And then invite. Maybe for you what that looks like is you're like, oh, I don't really know how to share the gospel or I don't really have a story I want to talk about right now at this stage. Just invite them to hear about Jesus. Invite them to come to a place. I've never heard of a place that talks about Jesus. Uh, oh, wait, you should kind of invite them to come to church maybe. Uh, maybe invite them to come to church or maybe invite them to come to the Pigros Barn Party. It would be a fantastic spot to hear about the Son of God, an open confession of the Son of God. So a life that is characterized by pursuing glory at least the few things we see here in the text we see a profuse generosity to the things of God we see a relative indifference to worldly fame we see a constant discussion of the word of God and we see an open confession of the son of God why because where you find your glory will always shape your story what story do you want people to be reading You were made for glory. You were made to reflect the image of the eternally brilliant God to a world that desperately needs him. You were made to be a part of the body of Christ, the redeemer of mankind. You were made for glory. But where you search for that glory is always going to shape your story. Who are you going to live for? Are you, are you going to live for worldly fame? Are you going to live for yourself? Are you going to give away your life now and live for the only one who can take your life and produce eternal glory with it? Let's pray. Father, your word at times is sobering. at times offers great hope, and at times offers both. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts. That you would do business with us, and we would do business with you. And I pray that we would live for the glory that comes from God. I pray that you would be the thing that we constantly put in front of us. I pray that you would be the one who we constantly are seeking. I pray that you would be our vision, God. Amen.